I know the day it was a Thursday night and the Friday I was like put my mask on to go back into work and just looking in the mirror thinking I haven't got a clue I don't even recognize this person as I'm putting and putting that whole ritual of putting makeup on and it was just like thinking there's nothing behind the eyes and now when you look back at photos of me during that time you like my eyes just look dead. That was Ruth recalling her experience getting ready for work the day after a simple setback led to her sitting in her bath contemplating suicide. Ruth had one more notch down the ladder to go before she was able to connect with a mental health professional and start figuring out the panic disorder and generalised anxiety she'd been trying to manage for 20 years. In this episode of Silent Superheroes, she explained what her conditions, panic disorder and generalised anxiety disorder, actually are. She talks about the sequence of events that brought 20 years of living with those conditions to a head. We discuss how the way work is structured and managed creates a self-perpetuating cycle that's hostile to good mental health. And finally, Ruth, now the managing director or CEO of Champs, leads a business bringing the conversation about mental health and tools to manage it to employers all over the world. Remember, Ruth and I are just two people talking about our personal experiences with mental health and mental illness. If anything you hear inspires you to want to change the way you manage your condition, please consult with your medical care team before you do. My name is James Pratt. I'm the host of Silent Superheroes, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to the Silent Superheroes podcast, a series of frank conversations about mental health at work. Welcome to Silent Superheroes. I'm here with today's guest, Ruth. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Ruth, why don't you um, introduce yourself and just let us know what, what is it you do? So I'm Ruth Cooper Dixon. I am the managing director and founder of a global mental wealth consultancy, which is called Champs. And we are based in London, but we work worldwide with mostly large co- global corporates, but uh, across private and public sector as well. So, and we support them with their well-being journey, helping them to ingrain a culture of positive mental wealth is our mission. What would be going on for me as an organization if I were to be thinking about bringing champs in? Work with organizations at various points of their well-being journey. So some are just thinking right we need to we need to do something for our employees we need to start figuring out what this is going to look like often that can be awareness type workshop sessions it can be engaging at leadership level a board level and figuring out what the actual well-being strategy looks like which is to be honest where we prefer to start because to get the the c-suite on board first really helps of course a little bit, a little bit less of a band aid if you're starting at the top and working down. Then someone's like, "Oh, let's just bring someone in to do a few talks." Yeah, so that whole fruit basket on Fridays, yoga, and a talk from Shams is not going to, you know, change the culture and change the way the business is done. And I came from a, a career before working in this space um, in operations. I'd worked in investment banking. I'd worked in aerospace I'd worked in wealth management so for me that culture business improvement background was what really makes it important for what we do because it has to sit into the fabric of the organization so it means working at all levels and we design and deliver bespoke tailored workshops because you could have two two law firms but in very different cultures and very different ways of working. So it's important that to engage with the people on a quite sensitive subject and a subject that people do feel really uncomfortable about bringing their whole self to work, that it's also in a way that fits the style of the organization with some, with some challenge, of course, where that's needed, but in a way that, that they can take on board and it, it reflects more broadly the other aspects of the, the training. So it's kind of, it's kind of almost like a jigsaw 
there are, in a literal sense, very many pieces to just changing culture of a company full stop. I mean, you know, even more complex in the case of, of mental health. You alluded to people bringing their whole selves to work. I think this is a big topic in, you know, in this space. So what is it that you think stops people bringing their whole selves, certainly in terms of their mental health, to work? Psychological safety is a big part of that. Knowing that you can come to work, you can speak up without fear of ridicule, without fear of being isolated, without fear of being excluded, without fear of knowing that if you take a stand against perhaps something that you don't believe in or that doesn't sit within your boundaries, that you aren't going to be reprimanded for that in any way. So in terms of your promotion or your ability to fit in as part of that in-group, I think when, when that psychological safety isn't there, which is a big part of the culture, people won't won't bring their whole self to work if that they won't talk about their partner at home or their life circumstances or what's going on for them and not every that doesn't mean everyone should come to work and share everything because again this is about boundaries and healthy boundaries are not oversharing and and, and keeping those measures in place until you actually trust somebody but if if there's a very if there's an open and honest culture, if a, if a manager is creating that open, honest culture in a team, then that allows people to share as appropriately as they need to or to ask for help or support as appropriately as they need to. And when that psychological safety isn't there, it, it, it stops people from wanting to be able to do that. What is it, do you think, that makes it terrifying for us to say, you know, I'm in a depression, I have anxiety, I'm bipolar, you know, I'm schizophrenic. Why are we terrified of, of telling people that? I think it's, it's down to the fact there's still so much stigma and lack of knowledge and awareness when it comes to mental ill health and mental ill health, you know, diagnosis. And we are talking much more in the last, you know, 18 months, two years, being much more open. We see more campaigns. We see celebrities and public figures talking very openly about their mental health struggles. But people don't realize that you can be diagnosed and still have positive mental wealth, the same as you don't have to be diagnosed to be suffering with your mental health as we're seeing now in the current climate of COVID-19, there's a lot of anxious and fearful people walking around um, who aren't diagnosed with anxiety disorders and, and potentially may never not be. But so I think that's really important to recognize the differentiator between those. And I think that education's not there yet. And I think those stereotypes around certain mental illnesses such as those under that fall under the psychosis umbrella, like bipolar, like schizophrenia, which again are very complex. The research is still very new in those areas. The scientific research is very new in those areas. I still have conversations in workshops where there was, you know, I've had one in the last year where somebody still had used the phrase happy pills to talk about medication. And this, but this was right at the end of a session as well, after everything we'd gone through. And I, you know, without me literally leaning across the table and <laughs> shaking this person, but just being able to say, look, I really, you know, I was really kind of sort of straight down the line about these are not happy pills. I don't, I actually don't, I've not been on medication for two years because it makes me feel happy. <laughs> uh, so I think, again, it's just this lack of, it's a lack of education. It's a lack of, of, of understanding. And then those stereotypes that still played into that stigma. And I think that's why people are fearful. I mean, what are the one or two things that you think people need to be educated about? What I've said about mental ill health doesn't necessarily mean positive, uh, you know, mental, mental well-being being low the same as on, on the flip side of that so that that really needs to be understood and the fact that 
it is so complex and it's not as black and white as people see it when it comes to physical health. And I know that analogy of, you know, if you had a broken leg, you'd get it fixed and you'd see that in the plaster, et cetera, but it it is, but it's so much more complex than that. And it's not the same as two people breaking their leg and it's fixed in the same way because it's so nuanced and it's so down to, that individual's support systems and the society that they're part of and their intersectionality and you know all these different factors which make it so much more complex and I and I think that is what is lacking in people's general more broader awareness of mental ill health. Yeah that's such a great point you make that it is complicated to diagnose but also to treat many of these conditions i think about my own journey with with bipolar and i describe it as a it's like a t- walk in a tightrope you know and the all the things that i do are like the the pole that the tightrope walkers use right and as i as i learn more like my pole gets longer but then i like forget to take my medication which i pretty much never do but um you know or i you know, I accidentally stayed up until two o'clock in the morning the other night. And like, I was not a wreck the next day, but I could tell like my pole had gotten shorter. Um, and it's taken me six years. I'm six years into my diagnosis to get to a place where, you know, I, I even have that level of awareness. Like when I started, I was just like, oh, I just take these tablets and that's it. You know? <laughs> it is. You're right. It's, it's, I'm five years diagnosed this year, this summer, um, in 2020. And it's taken me this long. It's taken me five years to be able to go exactly what you said that. And I love that whole tightrope and the pole because there's times when, especially in the current climate, the last couple of months where I've really had to pull on all the resources that I've ever had in my toolbox to, to keep me safe and well. And in fact, what you said about medication, I usually never forget to take mine. And then in March, because it was so hectic and I was so worried about the business of being a, a small business and, and not knowing what was going to happen, because we do a lot of our training previously in workshops face-to-face in you know, office environments. And there was a couple of evenings because I take my medication at night that I'd forgotten to take it. And I was wondering why I was kind of feeling the physical side effects, which I had when I first started taking it, nausea and, and blinding headaches. And, um, oh, it's because I've forgotten to take my medication. But it's it's because I've got so much of the stuff. I like think of the brain as being like a filing cabinet. And it was like, I think because there was so much stuff getting in there that I all the stuff was falling out of the way. And like you said, your pole's getting short. It was that whole shit I need to do something about this so it does take time you're not kind of go oh I've got a diagnosis great everything's solved now thanks <laughs> I only started taking medication two years ago so I had, had I was diagnosed I went three years of trying to do absolutely everything to look after myself and then went to the GP and said I'm still having these panic attacks and they are just horrific because it, it's it's building up every month into the cycle and I'm I can tell you my mood out of 10 every day I've been journaling it for uh, to call this research was basically going and, and, and I, I could see my mum who used to be a nurse and a midwife was like oh my god you're literally one of those patients are you like I roll <laughs> but she, in a kind way but but that's great because it shows you you're taking accountability of your own health right and you're taking responsibility for it and you're saying look I'm doing x y and z like what else can I do? Like help me to, to know that. And actually I had such a great relationship with this GP because I felt that she was the first person that really understood me and actually listened to me. And I, but I was also able to articulate to her because the average GP appointment in the UK is like six minutes and they say come with one problem. And actually, if you're talking about mental health, you tend to go all around the houses before you get to the real reason why you want to be there. So it was much easier for me to actually write. And I use this now with clients um, and say, before you go to your GP, write everything down. Because even if you just have to read it or give it to them, it helps because everyone gets nervous at some extent. You know, when you get into the doctors, it's like, am I really sick? Should I be here? Am I wasting people's time? Yeah. So I think it is. It's that accountability. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Self-stigma. Yeah. Like, am I am I making a good judgment about myself? Do I... Do I even believe that there is a problem? 
section, Ruth pointed out that the success of a mental health initiative depends on the culture that's in place and who's sponsoring it. Two companies in the same industry, of the same size, with the same success, might respond very differently to the idea of better supporting mental health. One of the questions I ask people considering a mental health initiative is how their company supports their physical health. Of course, most employers offer health insurance, but what I really mean is, what does a manager think and feel when someone's off for an illness? If there's an employee managing a serious long-term illness and people quietly roll their eyes all the time about the time off they're having. By the way, time off probably means doctor's appointments, having tests run, getting poked with a needle. It's hardly a vacation. But back to my point. If a company has a hard time supporting people with physical health problems, mental health is two steps more challenging. So I always say, make sure you build the empathy for physical illness first. Let's get back to Ruth and her story. In the next section, we're going to hear about generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder, and how Ruth, trying to cope on her own, eventually led her to a breakdown, which was the first step to true mental health. You have alluded to a couple of mental health issues that you um, experienced, but I don't think we kind of stopped and put a pin in and said like, hey, here's here's what Ruth manages. So why don't you fill us in? So I manage panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. So panic disorder is where an individual has repeated panic attacks, but also has a fear of having panic attacks as well, where you might have already had them previously. So there's often a trigger around that fight or flight system and generalized anxiety disorder. So just like a normal person being anxious, but to get a diagnosis, it's usually around six months for a continuous period. So every day waking up feeling like that whole anxiety. And again, the symptoms are different for everybody with that. It plays out very differently for people. My medication was to primarily support the panic disorder because I'd also had cognitive behavioral therapy in the early days which massively helped me and was tools and very practical anyway which is what Shams is about actually Shams is very practical and giving people those tools they can go away and use and find out if that works for them so and I think with both with generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder I think I'm right in saying that like they both have to be in sort of lots of different domains so like you wouldn't be diagnosed with panic disorder if it's like you just had a panic attack every time you got on a bus Right, has to be, has to be in different situations, I think, and same with generalized anxiety disorder. Like if you're always sort of anxious about one thing, that's not general generalized anxiety. It's about everything. It's that's where it's the whole the complexity. So panic disorder. There's a, a whole number of places that I would have panic attacks, um, and they started off actually really early on, like probably late teens early 20s um and over the years I tried different solutions to sort them out I I I actually thought they were me being weak or something to do my blood sugar or I was just overexcited or maybe I wasn't confident enough I think there was always this whole dichotomy in my head around the fact that I was really extrovert and confident but then had this whole fear and blushing and then this huge sweating and red face and and this whole need to run out of a room and it, I've I really struggled with that for for a couple of decades actually <laughs> now I think like why didn't I get help then you know um but didn't <laughs> if we can both agree it's okay for me to use this word it's mad isn't it that we do that <laughs> sitting in a car park like crying to the on the phone to my mom saying I couldn't get out of the car and I don't know what was going off with me and and, and my mom was yeah you know, as I said mum was a, a nurse and and even then you know she wasn't a mental health nurse and I don't know why that didn't there was a you know there was a, I was definitely now I know more about anxiety disorders I was I was definitely in that pool of a complex mix of risk factors as they call it as a as a kind of waiting for that diagnosis and perhaps if I'd have sorted it out earlier but like you say we, we I just adopted great well not so great coping mechanisms and avoidance strategies to deal with it <laughs> avoidance strategies are sort of a coping mechanism I guess 
what I've observed from doing this podcast over and over again is that people need like, things need to get bad enough that it's like you can't avoid it anymore. So I'm wondering, after 20 years of experiencing general general anxiety and panic disorder, what was it that led you to finally get a diagnosis? I went through a divorce, a relationship breakdown, which was my initiation. So there was an element there of guilt, of, of kind of breaking the marriage up. And that gave obviously a real stressful time and I didn't particularly handle that well in the sense of I actually took on board what people thought were healthy coping mechanisms so exercising and healthy eating but this fast developed into obsessive exercise and borderline eating disorder anorexia so I was like not eating well eating little making out it was when all the clean eating was coming out on social media sort of 2015 2014-15 and just lost a lot of weight, wasn't very well and not didn't speak to anybody, made this whole, I'm great, everything's fine. And I think there was an element where people knew I was a strong person. I'd, I'd gone through various life experiences, which we all do, and come out fairly, you know, fairly capable and strong. I'd, I'd done a lot of traveling, lived overseas on my own. So always been seen as the, the person that would just get on with things. And I think I did a lot of that and put that mask on. And people would say to me, well, at least you haven't got kids. You'll, and at least you're young enough, you'll find somebody else. So there was almost a an element of not wanting to just cry and be upset and grieve the end of a relationship that is okay. That's totally normal to do that. Um, and I didn't. And then the other thing I did was that I threw myself into work and I was on the board of a company at the time. I was um, very high achieving, always have been, which I think links into the anxiety piece most definitely, but um, was just use work as a distraction as, you know, home life is shit, throw yourself into work, work is shit, throw your life into, you know, it's kind of where we sort of balance things out and so, sort of work-life imbalance. Yeah, exactly. Work-life yeah. Se- work seesaw, perhaps. Yeah. In the short term, that worked really well because I was doing really well and the company was really pleased but that was coupled with everything I was I was basically trying to low level my thinking I was just exhausting my body at the weekends from training so I didn't have to think and feel numbing myself control mechanisms for anxiety disorders that's why often eating disorders and anxiety are often linked together and then there was a particular situation that happened it wasn't even um, like a big deal now that what you just said there about the other story and um, it was just something that had gone wrong at work which any other time I'd probably be annoyed about but just taking my stride and I remember being in the bath that night just like sobbing and thinking you know what I could just end it all now and that would be it and no one would know no one would find me because I'd lived alone and there were certain thoughts that were running through my head and I was sat, yeah, I was just really heartbreaking actually when I look back to that because, and, and I've not really shared this publicly to be honest, <laughs> this bit um, before, but yeah, it was really hard. And then I remember them putting the mask on the next, so it was, I know the day it was a Thursday night and the Friday I was like, put my mask on to go back into work and just looking in the mirror thinking, I haven't got a clue. I don't even recognize this person as I'm putting and putting that whole ritual of putting makeup on. And it was just like thinking there's nothing behind the eyes. And now when you look back at photos of me during that time, you like, my eyes just look dead. And then on the Monday, so that weekend, actually, it was my mum who approached me and said, because I was telling her I was getting really upset. And she said to me in this great kind of, healthcare professional way of well maybe you should go and see somebody for you know maybe you should go and have a chat with somebody like really kind of like casual drop it in over a glass of wine and I was like what do you mean do you think I'm crazy <laughs> maybe um 
maybe you just need to have a chat to someone. <laughs> a little bit more now. Yeah, <laughs> I did two minutes ago. And so she was right. And then I think on the on the Monday, but it was it was too late because by the time Mindy came around, I'd gone into the office and I'd actually tried to call the GP and they weren't available. <laughs> and then I ended up having this huge, what I call meltdown, but a huge panic attack in in work. And I don't even, and now I know it's called depersonalization, but I didn't, I, I, I could see myself looking down on, like looking down on myself there. And it was, and it's almost like I don't really remember much about this. So I just remembered that. And then I remember because I was in my CEO's office who wasn't in and the glass walls and everyone was just like, <laughs> what the fuck's going on? Like, uh, shall we get her home? <laughs> like, get, get her out of the building? Um, and then I was off work for a, for a, however, a few months. I, I mean, I don't really remember a lot of that month after. I, mean, you know, I, was, I was really lucky I was in for all the things people say about our healthcare system. I was really fortunate I got seen the following week because it was a cancellation and I could drive so I could get to a certain district that wasn't part of my own area, but I could see somebody. So I was really fortunate. It was so, so lucky and also really got on with the therapist. And I must have been in a pretty bad way for the GP to be, to kind of get me into that point. So it was, you know, it was definitely when I, when I talk to people in workplaces about stress and the importance of managing pressure is because there, I think a lot of people are still in this whole denial around the fact that they don't see how that tipping point can happen. And if you are in that spectrum of not coping and not dealing, or you've got all, you know, even genetically, or just you've got all this other stuff going off, it's just that how stress can be that catalyst for everything else like you said it's that rock bottom right it's something where everything has to get to that point where it's shit hits the fan basically we set up businesses to to kind of create these stress responses and the ways that people are managed the way that they're rewarded and promoted it all seems to rely on like make people feel stressed make people feel not quite good enough and then we'll get what we need out of them the ability for calm in an organization is not a word that people think calm. If it's calm, it's not going to be productive or it's not going to be high performing when actually that is so untrue. And I think this whole time of people having to work remotely, of course, there's a, there's a separate conversation around that with stress, anxiety, but all the hours that people do commuting, all the hours people do by feeling they need to be in their office building, we feel we have to perform and be visibly showing up constantly. Then actually that's, you know, we've proven that with businesses, especially the, you know, I'm talking here about big corporates where they can sustain that. Whereas before they've said, oh, no, you can't work flexibly or no, you can't have that time to focus on being more productive at home instead of doing a four-hour commute a lot of that's been down to lack of trust um and you know if I can't see you can't be doing your job well a lot of that's going to have to change once we've been doing this for a couple of months because if this works and people still are able to perform and do their jobs and how can you go back and say well we can't do that anymore after this I don't see how that's going to work because the big problem historically has been that people haven't, haven't been able to see it. To do it, it's been a leap of faith, right? And we're not, you know, some people are not great at leaps of faith. Calm is also problematic in the same way because people have never seen it. It's a self-defeating idea because people have never experienced it. They've only ever seen the other thing be successful. So again, like leap of faith to get to the point where you're like, oh, if somebody's working in a calm fashion they got time to, to ideate or to create or to make mistakes in what they're doing I've never seen that therefore it can't work that's one thing I've tried to do with my business is and I, I guess because of the work that we do anyway but to create a space where the team can be trusted and be authentic in whatever they feel like everyone has goal everyone has 
you know, objectives and, and tasks and things they need to do. But a lot of what we do is creative and we're coming up with content or we're, we're, we're problem solving for a client. And some days, if you've got to design a program, you, you just happen there that you, you're not in that headspace to design. Like, and you, you're right, because you're going to end up doing other things and they're not going to be productive and they're going to be rubbish as well. So actually you're better off sometimes just drawing a line under it and just, and I do it now and my team do it, but it's that whole, do you know what? Today's not a good day. I'm going to start again tomorrow fresh. And actually I have, I think, I know that I have more respect from my team and I know that they, they'll do the hours when they need to do them or they'll, they'll go that extra mile when they need to. But if, if, if they're not going to be bringing their best self, then that doesn't help me. It doesn't help the business, doesn't help the client. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And as a, as a leader, even we, we work remotely anyway as an organization, but I will say on Slack, I'm, I'm logging off now. I'm, I'm out. That's it. I'll see you tomorrow. Like I still feel that's important to set that frame. My out of office, we don't work Fridays. I'm recording this on a Friday as a because I was like doing you a favor. Oh, <laughs> and not just okay. a Friday. Friday, like at Friday fun, early fun. evening. <laughs> I know, right? Um, but my out of office is on all day today, and I might do stuff that's more ideas creation. But for clients, it's a no. It's an it's a no work day, and all the team have that. And and cl- you, I'm so always surprised that clients say because our out of office says we're working on our mental wealth. We work a four day week. We're not accessible. Here's an emergency contact number to call our MD Ruth call or whatsapp if 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 you can't wait till monday no one's ever called or whatsapp i was gonna say no one's ever called right in five five years (laughs) because it turns out very few things are actually emergencies no (laughs) but clients go i love you're out of office all right it's it's just you know, because I, I see, I might, and I still might, as the MD, of course, unless I'm on vacation, I might still see emails come through. And that's fine because I'll see it, but I won't respond to it again because I'm not working. I'll be like, okay, that's Monday. You know, it's that's fine. But it's amazing that people think that's still a novelty. <laughs> but, but it, I mean, it's, it is. Like, I know to you, it's not a big deal, but to other companies, the idea of a four day work week is insanity. You are insane. <laughs> I'm diagnosable crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's what's fun about doing this kind of work, right? You get to just do things outside, way outside, kind of you know, normal, acceptable. And I think that's what draws me to doing this kind of stuff personally. Many people, unfortunately, think mental illness is a sign of weakness. Some people speak up about that, and some people think it quietly. But either way, it's not true. Let's take Ruth, a successful businesswoman who went through 20 years of her adult life trying to get by with generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Sometimes she ignored it. Sometimes she passed it off as something else like low blood sugar. But it was there, every panic attack wearing on her and weakening her resolve. And all this time, by the way, holding down a series of jobs with progressively more responsibility. She was a director of a company. Ruth got farther up the ladder than most people do in work, all the time experiencing these overwhelming panic attacks. Is that weak? She went on to take the top position at Champs. Is that weakness? The problem, I think, is that most businesses have a very narrow definition of how work should get done and what's acceptable behavior for an employee. We owe an anti-debt of gratitude to Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was one of the fathers of the practice of management. Frederick made his name by optimizing steel plants at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. He called it scientific management, and it reduced people to cogs in a machine to be measured and told what to do. Now, since then, we've layered all sorts of clever language on top of that, but many of the ways that we manage today are rooted in that scientific cold process that Taylor created more than 100 years ago. 
Businesses still wish that people were just cogs that turned up, shut up, did what they're told, and never complain about it. If you're anything less than a machine, you're a problem. Fortunately, Ruth is in a minority of leaders who realize that she's employing people, not cogs. And she's built her business around that idea with things like a four-day work week and really giving people a lot of autonomy over when and how their projects get done. So let's get back to the conversation with Ruth. And in this final section, we'll be talking a lot more about businesses and what they can and should be doing to better support mental health. Let's talk a little more about the business. We've danced around it a little bit. Um, When you look around the businesses that you work with and that you come into contact with, what are the challenges that you're seeing them have around uh, mental health and mental wealth? I think a lot of it is about still the engagement at a leadership level to have that buy-in to see this as a priority or as a business as usual it's still seen in lots of cases as the nice to have we'll do it on world mental health day we might do a week in may which is the uk's mental health awareness week and even if the leaders are bought in then often it's it's the middle management piece that is still isn't supported. So you've got a CEO who's going, yeah, you know, here's my public story and this is my journey. But then it's the icing. I like, I always think of it as like being a bit like a Christmas cake. So the icing's all like bought in, but, and you know, you've got all the cake, which is your employees, but then it's this marzipan layer of managers that are just squeezed continually because they have pressures. They're trying to do their jobs. They're not equipped to be often great people managers. I mean, you will know that people are promoted often on technical ability, not because they're a good people person or a good people manager. I think managers understand they have, you know, most most humans I've met are fairly decent. Most people understand they've got a duty of care, but it's how you discharge that. You know, it's those managers who are thinking, well, I could engage in this scary, dangerous mental health thing, risky mental health thing. But if I do that, like, am I going to get to be the CEO? Like the smart play, the safe play is like not to get too deep into that, into that thing in case I get tarnished with the you know, mental health brush somehow. And then I don't get to kind of rise up the, the organization. So it's the fear of, you know, how it reflects on me. Cause I see it when I do, I don't know if you see this when you do, presentations and you'll solicit questions and i notice that i get far fewer questions for mental health presentations than i do for other topics oh what i find is that i always because when i do a a, a keynote or presentation if i'm sharing an element of my own story at the start it kind of gives people that permission or space especially in a workshop scenario as well and of course it's not all about me and it's not you know it's not a therapy session but sometimes just sharing a little bit of vulnerability gives people and I, I think as well if you're if you have a skill with that and I think it that's often a, almost a blessing and a curse but if you're able to hold space for people in that way they will open up which is is fantastic and you can you can have some really difficult and challenging conversations and I, to be honest they're my favorite like when you have a session and you you get challenged on this by managers because I think it's important to recognize their frustrations and fears as well and of course having a session where everyone's wearing rose tinted glasses and yes we should be doing more for well-being and it's great yeah that's wonderful but when I work with a business as champs we always say let's get those people in who are who are more critical, who are more cynical, who who have other agendas, because you want that mix, right? That goes back to the diversity and inclusion piece. So having that um, courageous conversation creates space for everybody to share their views, but also for people to learn and understand. And it doesn't feel nice. I think that's like, you're right, there's that fear piece, but also it's uncomfortable, right? It's It's a difficult meeting. And who wants, we don't naturally like having difficult conversations as humans it's not uh i can parade out a whole bunch of people who claim they like difficult conversations despite obviously not liking difficult conversations because they think that's something that they need to do or need to be in order to be perceived as strong or successful or or something like that because again people are playing a role and the more i think about it you described how you would put on a face after you'd had your you know serious kind of uh, you know anxiety 
break and try to be somebody. And the reason that this whole thing is called Silent Superheroes is we go to work with mental health conditions like uh, like superheroes do. Like we put on a mask, right? We put on our, our shirt and our tie and we you know pull up our pants and we pretend to be somebody we're not, meanwhile fighting you know, fighting uh, sort of demons on the side. But I realize now that everybody's doing that, right? Everybody in work is putting on a, an act. Very few people are actually able to be authentic, which is terribly sad. I've done quite a bit of work on authenticity and, you know, been reading lots about that and because it, it, it so inherently plays into our mental wealth. You know, when we think about investing in ourselves and making ourselves feel well and when we're being our honest authentic selves then we can say I'm having a shit day I'm having a great day I'm irritable I'm angry I'm feeling this you know it's it's about embracing who you are and what you're good at and what your strengths are and like you, like you say not everybody has to be a great people manager but that's okay just not let's share that and let's figure out how we work through it but we don't and let's celebrate you're the greatest fucking engineer on the planet <laughs> right you don't need to manage people in fact you're better off being an engineer for everybody's sake like exactly exactly i think uh oh that authenticity piece is is key to understanding as well because when we're not being authentic we put like a real risk around our self-esteem, our confidence, our self-efficacy, because we're not being true to who we are as well. And eventually over time, if you keep putting that mask on, you forget who you are. And I think for me, that was the point was that I'd got so far to that point. I remember maybe three or four months after I was, I had my breakdown and I was popped into my parents. I was sat watching TV with my mum. I just popped in and she looked at me and she says, oh, you just remind me of that girl that went off to Australia in 2002. And that was God knows how many years ago, you know, 13, 14 years before. So I think I'd come, I'd, I'd kind of almost started to come back, you know, I was making that journey back to who Ruth really was, but it was almost like that person just it had evaporated. And, you know, I think that's, that's really sad. Just, you know, heartbreakingly sad because there's probably, I've had that opportunity. I think for me, this is, this is why my research has been into post-traumatic growth. It's why I'm fascinated about this because, you know, I, I've come out the other side and of course I, I'd never wish this on anybody. I wouldn't want to go through what I've been through again. And, you know, and not every day's sunshine, rainbows and unicorns, but I'm more grateful now for the life that I have than I've ever been. When you're lying to yourself, deep down somewhere in your being, in your soul, you know. And I would never want to be that person who's on, you know, their their deathbed just thinking, I wish that I'd done something different. Like I don't want that. And I think there's lots of people that would hope to think that they wouldn't get to that point. But again, my mom is such a such a wise person that she when I was saying about you know what should I you know I'm a break having this relationship breakup what shall I do I'm gonna I think I'm gonna get divorced and my mom said nobody gives you a medal at the end for being unhappy (laughs) (laughs) I love it no one's going to give you a medal at the end for being unhappy I was like that's so true like you could spend your whole life in like a a shit relationship and no one's gonna say well done (laughs) Um, so that was like a big thing for me because <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, okay. So I don't have to stick this. Out. I mean, that's not about not walking away from everything, but I think you get to a point where you're like, actually, what is the, what is the benefit for this for, for everybody? And then again, it's that, like you say, it's that piece of, I need to make a choice. Fast forward to the end. What does this look like? I want to give you an opportunity to brag about the impact that your business has had and i know that you know as somebody who's british you know that might be hard so <laughs> you've not met me before <laughs> <laughs> but but let's do it through the lens of um like what are some of the wins that you've seen like what's some of the transformation you've been involved with in in workplaces we have trained um 10% quite a significant proportion of 
the UK's nurse in the middle free council employees in mental health first aid, which has been fantastic. We've created a global program for all 35,000 of Expedia's employees worldwide, which has been phenomenal to be on that journey with them. And one particular law firm um, we've been working with over the last, this will be the fourth year, we've seen considerable shift in their data where people have been disclosing mental ill health reasons for absence, which is fantastic because it shows a real significant shift in culture, uh, especially in a a law firm. I was going to say for a law firm yeah. to do that, you know, which yeah. prizes itself on, you know, crazy work and sacrificing everything. Yeah. That's remarkable. So we've had some really good wins in that space. I was listed as one of the 30 most inspirational women wow. in the city for the work we do in mental health. Thank you. That was in a magazine called Brummel last year. So there's been a few things, but I think every, do you know what? It's not even so much the big things. It's, it's the small things that you, the emails you receive, you have people come up to you and, you know, I have people that when I've done talks who queue up and want to have a chat afterwards. And I always think that's really lovely because you, you realize, I know that I only do that when I'm really when I've been really engaged with the speaker, like there's been something that's resonated. And if when people want to do that, and especially when it comes to mental health or they say, I've actually chosen to do this or, you know, do you think I should get some help? And my answer is usually, if you've asked me that question, you should get some help. I'm telling you, go and get some help. It's like so the it's classic. Like, if you're, yeah. if you're Googling, am I an alcoholic? You're an alcoholic. <laughs> so I think it's the little, I also think it's the little things that make me, happy and make me proud of if I just inspire that in one session and I always say to people in a workshop if if I give you one small thing for you to go away and change and do differently like one percent change and especially in an organization if everybody in that room and there's 15 people if you can all do one percent something different around mental health and creating a more healthy mental well-being culture if you like that's 15%. That can be 15% change. Or if you're all from the same department, that could be a, that could be like a pocket of really like fundamental change in your business. It doesn't have to be big. You don't have to do big stuff because collectively everybody makes that difference. So those things are really important for me. And you inspire a thought in me, which is the business person, you know, in me, as you were saying that, said like, oh, but you have to justify the ROI for them to spend the time on that. And then the idealists that I am now get to be kicked in and said, I don't fucking care if there's an ROI or not. Like, let's do it because it's the right fucking thing to do. Yeah. Ruth, I really appreciate your time. Before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity um, you know, to share something else that feels important or say something that, that you haven't said that you wanted to say. It really comes down to kindness and it's my biggest thing at the moment there's a there's a kindness element of looking out for each other more so than we ever did before and I think to know how interconnected we are now is we also have to display that kindness and compassion without necessarily understanding people's backgrounds or being judgmental about who they are and that's hard because we all have that bias in us and you know I shouted at two people in the supermarket today. Maybe, maybe they'd had a bad day and weren't paying attention. Maybe they were really worried about a relative and they weren't going like following the rules in the supermarket. So, you know, I'm I'm just as, I'm not sitting here from a place of of judgment on other people because I you know probably do, I do it myself. I'm human. So I think there's that kindness piece to others and compassion, but also we have to be kinder to ourselves, and that's an ongoing process and that looks it looks different every single day it's what you need from that day and what you have to ask yourself what 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 do I need what does my fat you know what's going to help me what's going to help those who are around me and you you have to take responsibility and accountability for that and but if you're kind to yourself you are inherently kinder to other people anyway so it's it's hard. It's, people think it comes easy, but it doesn't. And it's something we have to work on. 
my chemical dependency counselor, as I was um, sort of coming out of hospital, gave me this little card, which I still have, and it changed my life on, on the topic of kindness. It simply said, I am good enough. That never occurred to me before. I could find everything that was wrong, all the things that I should be doing. I never stopped to think, I'm actually okay, exactly as I am. Exactly as you are. Ruth, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate you're most you. You're welcome. Appreciate the work you're doing and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've been thinking a lot about Ruth's observation that sometimes a well-meaning executive will start a conversation about mental health and then not follow up with the resources, support and training to the middle managers who actually deal with employees every day. As Ruth described it, the marzipan in the Christmas cake. For American listeners, that's something we'll have to talk about another time. I came to the painful realization that I've done exactly that. I've been the exec who opened up the conversation with their own story, who got all the praise for being vulnerable and and leading in this area. And I've had lots of people come and thank me. I remember one person who I spoke to who was dealing with anxiety, and she wanted to talk to her manager and team about it. How do I do that? She asked. I gave her some advice, of course, and away she went. I didn't reflect on why she was asking me. It seems obvious, of course, that she knew she could talk to me. But what wasn't obvious to me at that time was that her instincts told her her manager just didn't know how to be in that conversation. So she was getting herself prepared to do all the work. I'm saddened that I didn't do better, that I hadn't really got managers prepared to invite that kind of conversation and and be in that conversation in a helpful way. And I'm sad on behalf of both the managers who may have felt unprepared and the employees who perhaps in many cases didn't feel safe enough to go have that conversation. I need to apply Ruth's advice and be kind to myself. I was trying to do the right thing. And I did okay. Started the conversation, but not great. And I'll do better next time. Take your mental health seriously. If you need to speak to someone, you can call 1-800-273-8255 or text crisistextline.org at 741-741. Both provide 24-7 confidential counseling to people in the United States. Worldwide, visit iasp.info slash resources slash crisis underscore centers slash. To help others find the Silent Superheroes podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service.